Our New Testament reading today is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Thank you, uh, Wendy, for reading so clearly for us. So let's keep that open in front of us then, and um, let's pray as we sit for God's help today. So, Father, our prayer this morning is that the eyes of our hearts would indeed be opened so that we would see the power uh, that you have for us and the hope that lies ahead of us. And we ask all these things for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you enjoy a good crime drama, but whether it's Columbo in the 1970s with Quincy, or whether it's the 1990s and Morse, and whether it's CSI, there's always a predictable formula. First of all, there's a murder. We then arrive on the scene and forensics arrive and they take the fingerprints. But it's not long before we end up in the mortuary as there's a dissection. It's a gory scene, isn't it, as the corpse is opened up. But it's necessary to find out the reason for the death. In actual fact, there was a man, and he's still alive. I think he's got terminal cancer, but his name is Herbert von Gunther. He invented an organization called Body Works. And he does live uh, dissections across the world. The first one was in London, I think, in 2002. It's pretty grim and gory. The person, I should say, is actually dead when he's dissecting them. But an autopsy or a post-mortem is grim, but it's also necessary. This morning, what's about to happen is the Apostle Paul is taking us through the dissection of the human nature. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see something of what we're like by nature as Paul opens up humanity in a dissection, a post-mortem that is both grim and necessary. And you'll see from our sermon notes that the section splits into two sections, verses 1 to 3, the devastating post-mortem, as then we move to verses 4 to 10, and the astonishing divine miracle. 
Paul begins by saying in verse 1 something that is offensive and startling. It is arresting. It's grim. Paul says, you were dead. He's talking about what we were like before we came to Jesus Christ. It's not that we were on a ventilator, spiritually speaking. It's not that we were sick or in a coma or paralyzed from the neck down. What Paul says couldn't be more startling. You were dead. There wasn't a flicker of a pulse. Of course, where there's life, there's hope. But Paul's point is that there was no life. Spiritually speaking, we were like a corpse on the slab in the morgue. Spiritually speaking, what we were like was this. We were a corpse in the coffin. Spiritually speaking, dead and buried in the cemetery. This picture then is of one of extreme hopelessness. And all the way through the New Testament, a range of metaphors are used to depict our plight. So the writers of the New Testament describe that we are deaf and we cannot hear. And we're blind and we cannot see, and we're slaves and we cannot find freedom. We're alienated and we cannot find reconciliation. We're lost and we cannot be found. We're enemies and cannot find peace. But this is the most extreme picture, as the Apostle Paul says, you were dead. It's not that we were dead to religion or dead to spirituality. You were dead to God. Well, any mortuary or any death certificate will have on it the time of death and then the cause of death. So, time of death, Genesis chapter 3. Because it was then that our spiritual parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in defiance against his word. And it was then... And there that they were banished from the Garden of Eden as they were expelled from the place of life and thrust out into the dark place of death. No way back to the tree of life. And humanity ever since Genesis 3 has lived excluded from God, alienated from God's, living in sin and under the long, dark, menacing cloud of death. Time of death, cause of death. Paul says it's to do with the trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. And he deliberately uses two separate words, trespasses and sins, to describe the comprehensive nature of our rebellion and the full extent of our wickedness. The word trespasses literally means to deviate or to go in the wrong direction. So you're traveling down um, Bethlehem Pike and your GPS is telling you to keep moving south on the main road, on the routes, but you accidentally take a left and head off on exit 13. You've gone the wrong way. You've trespassed. You've deviated off the right path. And the second word that Paul uses is sins. The Greek word for sin is borrowed from the world of archery or darts. It literally means to miss the mark. And if my darts is anything to go by, not only do I, do I miss bullseye occasionally, 
quite often, I miss the whole board as well. It's a missing of the mark again and again. And these two words go together. It is because we keep trespassing, deliberately deviating off from God's word and will, that we keep missing the mark of God's perfection by nature. This is the whole of humanity. We are a race that deliberately breaks God's law and continually falls short of God's demands in rebellion. But this autopsy continues, and it gets worse. Because not only have we turned away from God's in rebellion and guilt, and not only are we dead to God's, the death certificate records that we walked according to the course of this world. And that phrase, the course of this world, literally means the spirit of the age. And the Germans have a word for it called Zeitgeist. It was invented by the philosopher Hegel. The Zeitgeist is the spirit of the times and the fashions or fads of the age. It's the dominant mood of the culture as the general intellectual and moral climate of the age forms around us. So there's a phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. There's a phrase, just go with the flow. The Chinese have a phrase that the nail that sticks out will be pounded in. So we're not free. We lived as slaves to the world, like weather vanes that just blowed with the culture, with the zeitgeist, as we went with the herd and kept in with the crowd. We were like sheep, or like sponges, or like little moral thermometers. We were under the spirits of the age. In the clothes that we chose to wear and the language that we chose to use in the opinions that we formed and the ambitions that we dreamt. We were led like dead fish being carried downstream by the power of the currents, the zeitgeist, the course of this world. Because, of course, the dominant mood of our culture is selfism. I want to be free, to do what I want and when I want and how I want. That's the course of this world. The course of this world is to go the way of the flesh, and Paul mentions the word flesh twice. The word flesh here is negative, and he mentions it twice for emphasis. We were under the power of the flesh. So Augustine says that we journey through life according to our affections, but by nature our affections were not for God's and for what is right but for what is evil according to our appetites. Paul is describing a radical corruption of humanity, dead to the rule of God, alive to the lusts of my own heart. But who is it that governs the culture and manipulates our lusts? And the shocking answer of Paul is this, that behind the zeitgeist of the culture and behind the lusts of my own heart and flesh stands Satan himself. 
the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a book that you can get hold of called Hidden Influences. It's a fascinating read, and it depicts and describes the way that the advertising industry seeks to subtly change our minds and opinions and lifestyles by subtly laying the trail, a bit like the gingerbread cookies leading us to the correct uh, destination or the yellow brick road to Oz. It's a subtle form of, of manipulation, so be careful in letting your children watch the advertisers. We have a rule that we don't watch any, if at all possible, in the home. But the ultimate hidden influencer is Satan, and he stands through history like the puppet master general behind the scenes, pulling the strings. And we, by nature, are like marionettes dancing to his tune, as like the Pied Piper of Hamelin. He plays his tune, and we follow the merry dance all the way down to the river of death. And Paul's point is that by nature, that's where we were, dead to God and slaves to sin and slaves to the devil what people long for is to be free. But actually, in the Bible, there is no such thing as freedom. There is no such thing as breaking free. Biblically speaking, spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, we are either slaves to Satan, sin and death, or slaves to God's and righteousness and life. It's two slaveries, A or B, one or the other, black or white. And before, who were we but slaves to sin, controlled by the puppet master general, Satan himself? C.S. Lewis describes the world as enemy-occupied territory, for we lived in a culture willingly going with the flow, willingly doing in Rome as the Romans do, controlled and under the influence and sway of Satan himself. So the great battle cry of our culture is freedom. If you watch the musical Les Mis, it's uh, 1789 Paris, as they storm the Bastille and seek to overturn the rule of the king. Or in the words of Freddie Mercury, I want to break free, but this, this quest for freedom that our spiritual parents, Adam and Eve, invested in was really a break for the worst slavery of all. A horrible slavery, verse 3, as we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the minds. The picture then is one of total bondage, one of total control under the slavery of sin and Satan. Just this last week, I heard probably one of the most disturbing news stories I've heard for quite a while, and that's saying something. It is the story from Scotland this last week of a convicted rapist, of a violent rapist, who at sentencing decided to self-identify as a woman in order to be housed and imprisoned in a woman's prison. And part of the lunacy of the Scottish government is that that was permitted. 
And as I read it, I was sickened. I said to myself, it's disgusting and vile, both the policy of the Scottish governments and the behavior of this man. And then I had to stop as I reached verse 3, because there's no room for arrogance from Pastor Tony, because in verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived. So the point is that, spiritually speaking, we are different, but let's be clear, we are not better. We are different because of the Spirit of God, but we're not different. This is precisely how we once lived, imprisoned by our lusts, incarcerated by our passions, chained by our impurities, driven by the appetites of hunger and thirst, the hunger for thirst for money and sex, and the passions of our minds too, career, success, ambition. But do you accept the diagnosis? Pelagius was a fifth century British monk who taught in Rome. And whilst he believed in the sinfulness of man, he did not accept original sin. He didn't accept that ever since the Garden of Eden, because of the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve, our whole nature was corrupted. He believed that humanity could be perfected, that our natures could be transformed. In short, he didn't believe we were dead. And it fell to Augustine to answer Pelagius by teaching that when Adam fell, in a way that we will not fully understand, he acted as the head of the human race. And therefore, there is a solidarity between Adam and us. He acted in a way that we don't fully understand for us. And he did then what we would have done. The word Adam means man. He acted as our federal head. And so when Adam acted and sinned and fell and was thrown out of the garden, he plunged the whole human race into corruption, or if you like, original sin. But Pelagianism, or semi-Pelagianism, lives on today. It's the idea that I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not perfect, I'm not exactly a Mother Teresa, but I'm not a Hitler either. I'm not that bad, a few rules broken here or a few little indiscretions over there, but I'm not that bad. And semi-Pelagianism lives on alive and well in the thinking of the left today. Because at the heart of the progressive's dream is the idea that humanity can make progress. We can rise from the ashes into victory and triumph. It was Rousseau that taught that man is born free but is everywhere in chains. And so the program of the left, of the progressive, is one of emancipation. If only we could get better schools and better universities and improve the environment and the climate, and if only we could go through a better socio-economic deal for our culture and our country, then humanity can be reshaped into a new world. 
But while the dream of the left is noble, it's naive. There can be no progress because the problem is not our habitats, but our hearts. Spiritually speaking, man is in the coffin, in the grave, dead to God. As G.K. Chesterton puts it, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And this terrifying and sobering yet liberating analysis shoots down the progressive's dream in a way that is helpful to us. For no matter how often the elite gather in Davos or meet at the Security Council of the UN in New York, no matter how many Ivy League graduates emerge from our world-class universities, no matter how many charter schools are formed or how many curricula are improved, no matter how many government paychecks are paid out, no matter how much the economy grows or science advances, no matter how much the scientific barrier is pushed, there will never be, because there can never be progress for humanity, because the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human hearts. We are dead to God. An analysis you will never hear in any presidential address from the Oval Office. An analysis you will never hear on Capitol Hill. An analysis you will never hear on the university or school's curricula. But an analysis that is true, for we find it from God's apostle in his word, in verse 3, verse 1, you were dead. And in verse 3, Paul moves from our unchangeable nature to our inevitable destiny. You were by nature children of wrath, he says. And that phrase, children of wrath, is borrowed from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 25, the sinner is described as a son of stripes. In Psalm 102, the rebellious are described as the sons of death. Because Paul is describing that inevitably there has to be a day when the holy God of the universe will pass judgment, judicially speaking, against sin and rebellion. There will have to be a day of wrath when God the Holy One pours out his final unrestrained judicial sentence for an eternity of unimaginable agony and punishment for those who will not accept Christ. The picture is one of complete hopelessness. Imagine a, a patient who walks into the hospital and, and the physician says, well, I'm sorry, but it's stage five terminal cancer. There is nothing that can be done, no treatment, no, no surgery. Or is the picture of a, of a convicted prisoner somewhere on death row in Florida? And as he sits in the penitentiary, sentence has been passed and he's appealed, but it's been rejected. And there is no possibility of going to the Supreme Court. There is no possibility of a presidential pardon. As he sits on death row, it's helpless and hopeless. And that's us. And that's me. And that's you. And just like a leopard, 
There's nothing we can do to change our spots. There's nothing that we can do to make it good with God's. An eternity of unimaginable agony as children of wrath. That's who we are by nature. It's what we deserve from God's. And then it's as if we're walking down a dark road in the pitch black of night, and suddenly you see some car headlamps coming around the corner on full beam. Suddenly, in the extreme darkness of our situation and our plight, there is a beam of lights as we move in verse 4 to the two most remarkable words of the New Testaments. But God... Verse 4, two most glorious words as Paul announces, but God's. These two words divide history into two epochs, humanity into two groups. Two words that should be constantly on the lips of every Christian person. Two words that move us from hope to despair. I'm sorry, from despair to hope, uh, from darkness to light. From the human to the divine, from the natural to the supernatural, these words are arresting and dramatic and stark, and they, they function like a San Andreas fault. Two words, but God's being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ the summary, by grace you have been saved. John Stott correctly puts it like this, from plumbing the depths of pessimism about man to rising to the heights of optimism about what God has done. These words then take us to the very heart of the gospel, to the very good news of Christianity, to the epicenter of the message of God. This is amazing grace. God has intervened and has reached into your coffin and pulled you out of your grave. The sole basis of this intervention is not merit but mercy. God's mercy is his overflowing, active compassion on helpless sinners. He chooses people who deserve nothing but judgment, and he showers his grace and pity upon us. And that word mercy here is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word chesed, which is the word of covenant grace in the Old Testament, the steadfast love of the Lord, the mercy of God, the covenant goodness of God, his chesed is forever a word of divine pity. How then do we picture God's distant and demanding, disinterested and detached? This is the God who will always have pity, who will always show love. This is a God not just of mercy, but Paul says, of rich mercy. Soon after we arrived in the US, I was driving a car that wasn't mine and wasn't used to it. And in the UK, if you're driving a car and it says 
that you have no gas. It doesn't really mean that. There's at least 50 miles to run. So I noticed that the gauge was saying low, and then it said none. But I just kept on driving and assumed that it would all be fine. Well, it was all fine until all of a sudden the car juddered to a halt in the middle of the freeway. And it was the most extraordinarily terrifying moment. I didn't know what to do. It just stopped. I ran out of gas. Um, it's an amazing story. That a man runs out from his house. He happened to have a spare canister of um, gas in his hand, practically, and he filled it up, and on I drove. But it was a, an extraordinarily sobering moment. Um, but it occurs to me, could it be like that for the Christian with God? Could it be that the gauge of mercy and grace, if we keep sinning, might run low and one day run out? And the answer of the New Testament is no. It can never run out because God is a God of never-ending mercy and pity and grace. And no matter how much we sin, we can never out-sin God's. No matter how much we sin, we can never out-sin God. Because it, no matter how much and how great we sin, there is always more sin and more grace to cover it. You cannot out-sin God, but you can try. For this is the God rich in mercy and grace, who has loved us with a never-ending supply of mercy and grace. How does it work? How can we be sure? Well, in July last year, there was an extraordinary Twitter clip, and I think you can still see it online as I did this week. There was a hidden camera, and the footage caught this guy on a motorcycle somewhere in Brazil, and he was driving uh, towards a road, and he lost control of his bike and skidded, and then slid uh, across the road under a bus. And his head got caught under the wheel. But amazingly, he was wearing a helmet, and the uh, wheel of the bus crashed into the helmet, which took the impact and arrested the movement of the bus. Had it moved, according to the medics, just one or two more millimeters, he would have been crushed to death. But he slid under the bus, and the full impact of the movement and weights of the bus effectively held onto and landed on top of the helmets that saved his life. Because on the cross, that's what happens. It is what happened. As Jesus died at Calvary on that hill of agony and shame, the full impact, the full weight of our guilt and the judgment of God and the wrath of God that we as sons of disobedience deserve, it fell not on me but on Christ, who like that helmet took the full judicial weight and power of it, saving me. And we benefit from this through union with Christ. Because as we are united with Christ and incorporated into Christ, all that he has is given to us and all that we have is given to him. It's like that in a marriage, actually, at a wedding, isn't it? As the couple stand on the chancel steps. I don't know the precise liturgical words you use in America, but back in the UK, it goes something like this. He says, all that I am, I share with you, and all that I have, I give to you. 
She says the same, all that I am I share with you and all that I have I give to you. And it's like that when we come to Jesus, as I say to Jesus, all that I have, my guilt and sin and rebellion and shame, all that I have I give to you. And then Jesus repeats the vow in covenant grace through the gospel and says, and all that I have, I share with you his perfection and righteousness, his mercy and grace as he takes our guilt and gives us his perfection for free. I was talking to a corporate executive in Manhattan some years ago when I was visiting there for various reasons, and we got talking, and he told me of how he used to be an alcoholic. He told me of how it had almost destroyed his marriage and almost destroyed his career at the top of the rat race on the street. And as he told me of his shame and guilt at it, of his powerlessness in the face of it, he then said these words that I'll never forget. He said, I deserve to feel shame, but the thing about the cross is that Jesus took all my shame for me, and I refuse to feel it anymore. That's the gospel, isn't it? But in verse 6, we discover that not only have we been forgiven, it's, it's, it's more glorious still. Forgiven. Verse 6, and raised with Christ, and seated with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7, that in the coming ages he would show the insurpassable, surpassing riches of his grace and kindness to us. For through the saving death of Jesus, not only have we been forgiven, but we have been united to Christ, raised from the grave, and seated in heaven. Where is Jesus now? Raised and seated. And I was trying to explain this to the confirmation group earlier on. Here's your life. And the moment you become a Christian, you're placed into Christ. You're incorporated into him. But where is Jesus? First of all, he's raised from the dead. But second, he has ascended into heaven and is seated right now at the right hand of God. And so if you've been incorporated into Christ by faith through grace, where are you now? You follow the same journey. You've reached the same destiny. It's like that, actually, when I meet a newborn. I love meeting newborns at church. And I'm tempted to say, welcome to church. This is your first time here. But that's not true. For nine months, that little baby has been here. But in utero, we haven't seen the child, the daughter, the son, but they've been here because wherever mom's gone, wherever the mother's gone, the baby has gone because the baby is inside her. And it's like that for us. If we are incorporated into Christ, we follow the same journey. We have followed the same journey. We have been raised past tense. We have ascended into heaven, and right now, where are you seated? Well, you say row five, Emmanuel Souderton Church. Emmanuel Lydies, row five, that's where I'm seated, in Souderton. That's true, but it's not the full story. 
You're seated in heaven right now. So what's our address? Well, I live in Sellersville. But Paul says, and in heaven. What's your address? Percocy, but Percocy and in heaven. The Christian has two addresses. And this point is extraordinary, and it goes to our assurance. So many Christians struggle with assurance. They say, I don't know whether I will make it into heaven. But it's a false struggle. Because if you're Christian, you're already there. You have already been raised. And now we just wait for our bodies to catch up on the day when Jesus takes us home in glory. Verse 8 is the summary. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God's, not as a result of works. For the gospel equation goes like this. I'm saved by grace plus nothing. I do not have to say 500 Hail Marys or 1,000 Our Fathers. I do not have to take Mass. I do not have to go to the confessional. I do not have to go on pilgrimage to Lourdes or climb the Sancta Scala steps in Rome. I do not have to be baptized. I do not have to be confirmed. I don't have to become a member of the church. I don't have to give to the offering. I don't have to be a good Catholic. I don't have to be an amazing Christian. I'm saved by God's charity, by his mercy and grace and kindness alone. And it's not that I'm saved 99% by God's mercy. And then I add my 1% of faith. Because Paul says, your faith, even that's a gift of grace from God's as well. This week is Holocaust Remembrance Week, as we remember the horrors and the terrors of Nazi Germany. And I was thinking this week of the diary of Anne Frank, and also of those awful trains to Belsen and Auschwitz and the chimneys and the destruction and the death. But here's the test that we believe that we're saved by grace alone. I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again. It's called the Adolf Hitler test. There's a man who is the personification of evil. He's a monster. But let's just imagine hypothetically that in the dying moments of his life, as the Allies were moving into Berlin, as he took that cyanide pill and placed it on the tongue of his wife, Eva, and then as he took the capsule... As he stood there with his wife, perhaps holding hands and dying, about to meet God, his maker, imagine he was to have prayed a prayer that went something like this from the heart. Oh God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Do you believe he is in heaven now? Because if you don't, you've not understood the gospel of grace. It is by grace we have been saved, the gift of God. You are dead, and you're alive by his mercy and grace. Four things as I finish. Be humbled. Be thankful. Be sure. And be clear. 
humbled as I see that I was that corpse in that coffin as Jesus put his hand in and raised me to life. Be thankful. Had he not done that, I'd be in hell right now. Be sure. It's not that you're going to heaven. Don't be silly. You're already there, seated with Christ. And be clear as we announce this amazing gospel to a dead and dark world. Let's pray. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. Father, these words offend us. They humble us. They cause us to despair, yet we marvel at that light in darkness, that great promise and that great truth, that at the cross and by your spirit you have raised us, not only to forgiveness, but to heaven itself. Humble us, we pray, change our hearts, that we might be continually thankful and sure and clear as we announce this gospel to a dead, dark, lost humanity. And we pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.